Welcome to Bridging Worlds, Adam Art Gallery's podcast content accompanying the exhibitions, Lucy and Resources, Everything, and Megan Dunn's The Mermaid Chronicles. These shows can be seen in the gallery until the end of December 2022. Although two distinct exhibitions, they align around similar notions of personal obsessions and private fantasies. In Resources Everything, the material produced by his uncle Gerald O'Brien was completely secret until after his death, whereas Dunn's The Mermaid Chronicles is a celebration of all things merpeople. This episode is an omnibus of sorts, featuring interviews Megan Dunn undertook via Zoom to support screenings of mermaid-centric films Splash, Million Dollar Mermaid, and I've Heard the Mermaid Singing. We hear from Robert Short, mermaid tailmaker for Splash, Dr Jenny Kokai, author of Swim Pretty Aquatic Spectacles and The Performance of Race, Gender and Nature, and Patricia Rosima, director of I've Heard the Mermaid Singing. Hey, Robert. Hello. You know, I think I found a tale on the internet here that I put in my background. <laughs> yeah, you did. Oh, that is actually the uh, that is actually the original tale. Oh, is that? Yeah. So, yeah. This is an interesting thing for the audience. How many tales were there in Splash? How many tales were made and what were they used for? Four wearable tales. Mm-hmm. Two for two for Daryl, two for the stone woman, and uh, one uh, a big uh, a big tail on a stick and a little tail on a stick, and in the end result, the only tails that were used were the two that um, that were made for Daryl, uh, because um, even though we made uh, tails for the stunt uh, the stunt woman, um, she was never really used. Yeah, I think one of the things about Splash that strikes me as being really important to the current mermaiding movement is just that it made it look real. It made it look so real. And part of what makes it look real is that Daryl is actually swimming in the tail. It's the beauty of the tail itself, but it's the fact that she does all of her own scenes. And that was... Something we discussed originally. Um, right. She, like she wasn't allowed to blow bubbles, right? So how were those scenes kind of done? Yeah. Ron didn't want her having to blow bubbles because it would it would break part of that mystique. It's not something that the audience would really key into, mm-hmm. um, but subconsciously. There's something about the fact that sharks and fish and et cetera don't blow bubbles. Mm. And, and so it was actually very important to maintain this the look of the mermaid by not having having her blow bubbles. But the problem is that when you have a diver on a scuba tank taking in error, taking in air off of a tank and then swimming away from the tank. If you if you don't if you begin to raise up and head for the surface, uh, the air that you have in your lungs will cause air embolisms and go into your lungs and create the bends. Mm. If you're not releasing the air, so you'll notice. So again, people don't notice it, um, but Daryl always swims 
perpendicular to the um, uh, the ocean bottom. So she's always le- she's always swimming in a level plane. When you built the tail, t- the original tail, can you just t- tell me, tell the audience maybe some of the breakthroughs in that process? Up until we did Splash, um, uh, all mm. the mermaid costumes were pretty much just solid latex and you mm. couldn't see through them, the fluke area. Mm. Um, so I looked at, I kept looking at fish and because um, Ron Howard, you know, wanted you know, wanted me to do a goldfish inspired tail color um, and kind of, you know, kind of pointed me in that direction. Um, you know, I'm looking at goldfish and I'm looking at other fish as opposed to sharks or dolphins. So one of the things that stands out about fish is the translucency of their tail and their, um, and their fins, their pectoral fins and their dorsal fins are usually clear and you can see some of the bone structure in them. I figured that if I could get a translucent fluke and fins integrated into this design, it would take us like one step beyond where other mermaid costumes had mm. gone at that point. So I started doing research on what would be clear urethanes and what would work with latex. And originally the prototype tail that um, that I made was a solid latex a body and um, the um, uh, clear urethane for, uh, for the fluke. And what happened is in the testing, um, the fluke turned out to be great and the body itself was, yeah, it just wasn't working. So that was gonna have to require some more research to figure out what to do with the body. But the fluke, I figured if I made the fluke big enough and wide enough and gave it support inside, which I the clear um, originally thought of plexiglass and then uh, realized that that would be too um, uh, too brittle. Uh, so I ended up using a more flexible clear plastic called buterate, mm. which I was familiar with because it had been used on the dome section of Robbie the Robot from the 50s. Uh, it's a it's a clear plastic and it's vacuum formable and it's just more it has a flex to it. Um, so kind of using some technology from the 1950s from mm. from Forbidden Planet and Robbie <laughs> the Robot. Um, um, I figured that uh, I could use um, that material in a flat sheet inside the um, urethane of the tail to give it the right support so it would give it the propulsion mm. of, a real, of a real fish. And again, I looked at fish and their percentage of tail to body and um, uh, kind of integrated that into the design as well, which is why the fluke is so, the fluke is so big. Um, and then you see when she's swimming, the fluke folds in on itself a lot and then mm. unfolds as she's swimming, uh, which gave it another kind of organic quality, which was also planned. And, and integrated by, by creating the um, inside plastic um, support pieces. Um, so the testing actually went really well. Were the um, uh, translucency in the tail and all the fins that were on the costume. Mm. And then the next thing was figuring out a better body material itself. And uh, uh, again, since we were going to be out in the Bahamas, we knew we were going to be out in the Bahamas. We were going to be out in the ocean 
open ocean uh, working on this stuff. I wanted a material that was that was easily fixable on location, right on set, if anything happened to it. Also wanted something that would hide the bend of knees mm. um, and ankles mm. um, in the suit in the suit itself. Um, and and speaking of kind of disguising things, uh, I'm, I think that our suit was the first one to have these ankle fins um, on the heels. And the reason why I put those on there was to kind of disguise the human form uh, mm. to take her eye away from where her heel would be by creating this flowing, um, mm. you know, this flowing um, heel fins so that your eye didn't like, you know, your, your eye couldn't pick up that easily, you know, where her actual heel would be. Um, so, so interesting because I think one of the heckles professional mermaids get is mermaids don't have knees. Like kids say that to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, some of the very successful mermaid movies kind of show that dream, that fantasy. And it's not so much the love plot or whatever the film might be built around. It's the fantasy of being the mermaid, swimming as a mermaid or seeing a mermaid, you know, seeing something fantastical and lyrical and beautiful. Yeah, I don't... Yeah. There's a whole, you know, and and the thing about mermaids and mer-cons, mer mm. you know, mermaid conventions and get-togethers and meetups and, you know, I attend as many as I, I attend as many as I can and, and support the community wherever I, you know, wherever I can. Um, because, you know, I, you know, I, I came from of cosplay and going to conventions when I was younger and it's it's my going to conventions and doing cosplay myself um, that got me into you know uh, makeup effects and visual effects and stuff and uh, and so I have a you know so I, I feel that I feel a kindred spirit to uh, anybody who you know um, who who finds their group and the people who who are like minded and they can let their hair they can let their hair down and have a, <laughs> and have a, and have a great time. What um I know that you're a very good swimmer, Robert, and that was another reason why you got into splash um, and a good diver. I, I've made a, a short PowerPoint that's in my show, amongst many many other things. The PowerPoint I uh, certainly wouldn't say as a highlight. But it was just a simple visual way for me to present key quotes and images of Splash influ of Splash's influence. So I have one about you talking about the translucency of the fins, because I do remember thinking, yeah, I never would have thought about that. But he's right. That does make a huge difference. But I also put in there, I think when I first interviewed you on Skype a long time ago, I asked if she ever had gills in the design and you said, no one has ever asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, she's never, yeah, she never had, she never had gills. Um, when doing the development, uh, the first, the first design I presented was much more like a human dolphin hybrid mm -hmm. kind of creature where she did have, um, you know, a kind of a, kind of a, blowhole kind of thing that you know would be the closest thing to to gills and she looked very much more like a dolphin than than a fantasy fish mm. creature 
kind of thing. And because um, it, it really intrigued me about the idea of if there really were mermaids, mm. what would they really look like? And what would a human, just like whatever animal evolved into the dolphin, having been a land animal and then evolving into the dolphin, what would a human type species look like if they went back to the sea yeah and they wouldn't look like a mer they wouldn't look like our traditional mermaid they wouldn't look like madison and they would have much more there would be something else to them like in the same way that the dolphin evolved humans would have have if they had gone back to the sea they would have evolved and um so the very first design i did for splash actually was much more of a human a dolphin-esque creature that had, you know, the kind of dorsal fin and the hands and the feet had kind of formed into, into fins and, and um, the body was kind of a sleek, you know, that, that sleek gray with the white underbelly and, mm. you know, and, and just looked much more like a, you know, the, the cross between a dolphin and a, and a human. And uh, it was actually a pretty intriguing design something I, I certainly had never seen anybody you know do before in a film and I took I you know I took it in and Ron said no <laughs> <laughs> we're I love still doing a fantasy we're still doing a comedy <laughs> and uh, she is just a classic mermaid but let's step her okay but let's step her up let's make her a goldfish so that we're not doing the mermaid that everybody else has done, but let's see what we can do with a with a goldfish or a koi, you know, a, a koi, mm -hmm. a golden koi inspired design. So I immediately put my dolphin design away and never never mentioned it again. And we I, moved right on to the moved right on to doing the or the the orange tail. And I only did one drawing. Yeah. Wow. I did, I did one drawing of the tail in color and presented it to Ron and he said, that's it. Okay. Let's, let's, let's just go for it and see where it is and see where, see where it takes us. I wonder Robert, if it's not somehow related to the fact that Ron himself was a redhead, you know, there was an inbuilt yeah. bias to the goldfish. <laughs> was there not? You know, I never really thought about that, but you're probably <laughs> absolutely right. Another thing that created the believability was the fact that Daryl actually did all of her swimming mm. and the fact that she herself volunteered to do that. Without that, it Madison would not have become the mermaid character that uh, that she is. And the fact that um, the fact that um, Daryl always wanted to be a mermaid and swam like a mermaid on her own and would tie her feet together with her flippers and swim like a mermaid. Um, and the fact that, you know, she herself put her out to Ron uh, during the testing period and said, let me try the tail on while you're working with the stunt woman and see what I can do. And the fact that Daryl was able, we put Daryl in her tail and she swam circles around the stunt woman in in a much more sophisticated much more stylized much smoother moves than the stunt woman could uh, possibly think of um she created that character's be believability by just you know she acted that character and became that character mm. without that yeah, uh, I, I, I don't even know if the tale would have would have resonated with people so much without um, somebody like Daryl. Uh, it's very kind of you. Part. 
you know. She did embody it. She did embody it. And I love what she says about her performance in Splash. I read it in, a, in an interview with her. She could have played the part as a seductress, but she chose to play it as an innocent. And I think some of that innocence that she brings to an expression of the mermaid as an out-of-towner is very infectious, as well as the lyricism of her performance. Mm. Yes. Yeah, all all very true. And one of the things that I and one of the things that I, I get a kick out of, more probably more than anything is whenever I run into either a mermaid fan or other women who are named Madison. Oh, yeah. Some know that they've, some, some of them know that they're named after a mermaid and some <laughs> of them don't. But just like Wendy is a name from Peter Pan. Oh, yes, of course it is. And Madison is strictly from Splash because before that, and in the film, of course, she says, I want to be named Madison. After <laughs> and, Madison and, Avenue, that after great After Madison Avenue, and they goes, well, I'm not sure that's really a good idea, but she insists on it. For me, it's heartwarming when I run into a Madison knowing that, that, that our mermaid is responsible for a um, a whole generation of women that have been named Madison. It's it's and, perfect. Uh, who would have guessed? Who would have guessed? It's perfect, and I'm so glad I got that because I can see I've got less than a minute. I can't thank you enough, Robert. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Long time no see. It's true, and with COVID, it feels like everything is a decade longer than it actually was. Yeah, you're looking great. Thanks. I have fond memories of um, where you know meeting you at that conference, Mermaids, Maritime Folklore and Modernity in Copenhagen in late 2017. And yes. You were, you were doing the the keynote and it must have been at the time that swim pretty your book aquatic spectacles and the performance of race gender and nature had just come out um, that is true i thought today i'm talking to you thank you for coming online and talking to me i have annette i think behind me um annette kellerman who many mermaids i've spoken to consider the first professional mermaid although i guess that's up for some debate but certainly she links the lineage of mermaiding to performances on screens which is highly relevant but um I wondered if we could talk a little bit first before we discuss the presentation of her in Esther Williams' Million Dollar Mermaid, just about some of the big ideas in Swim Pretty and, um, you sure. know. Um, I, I grew up going to Wikiwachi in Florida, which is the city of live mermaids, um, although their city status has, you know, I think it might have disappeared. Um, but. I, I became interested in how that show came to be, uh, and it, it seemed historical to me uh, when I was seeing it in my lifetime, and so I, I knew it had to come from somewhere. And so in the course of that, I learned sort of about the early film mermaids, um, 
and the history of mermaid performance, which does go back before Annette Kellerman, although I would say Annette Kellerman made a huge difference in terms of advocating for swimsuits that allow for actual mobility because they used to weigh 40, 50 pounds and be made out of wool. Um, and uh, water water cleanliness, they also sort of, as swimming, as swimming became more of a thing, um, mm. early mermaid performers were some of the advocates for stopping things like dumping uh, refuse in the water, which made the swimming areas really disgusting. Um, mm. So uh, while there were performers at Hippodromes or mm. Sadler's Wells before that, or even back to Roman spectacles, um, the, the mermaids uh, from Kellerman's era sort of really are the ones that we modern we, we think of in the modern era as the kind of mermaid performances that have a really long legacy, mm. um, even to this day and sort of set the standards for what we expect. Um, and so those standards are what I was really interested in determining, like how did these performances come to be? What do they have in common with other mermaid performances? Uh, and so I argue in Swim Pretty for what I call an aesthetics of dissension, which are the sort of artistic hallmarks that a lot of water spectacles have in common and still do. Uh, and those include things like hiding technology. There's a lot of technology that goes into water performances and even those early films, um, but we hide all of that so we can create a fairy tale world below the surface. Uh, that world often aligns women and people of color with a sort of natural primitive world in opposition to the masculine world of industry on the land. Um, there's a lot of use of pastel, of those uh, music that's very soothing, um, and it all kind of constructs what's considered to be a family-friendly mermaid, because uh, mermaids are always chased. They can appeal to the dad and the tourist thing, um, but they're half fish, so they can be pretty, but they're not ever fully sexualized. Um, and so I looked at that aesthetics, which I sort of start with the 1939 New York World's Fair and mm. the Aquacade that Billy Rose constructed, um, and mm. that some of those early mermaid performers were definitely in, uh, and then went to Wikiwachi and Ocarina Springs, and ultimately does connect directly to SeaWorld parks today. Mm. Um, SeaWorld was, uh, the folks from Wikiwachi went to create the SeaWorld parks, um, but what we expect from our mermaid performers sort of morphed along the way into performing with apex predators, uh, with orcas. And that obviously was not a sustainable or wise choice. No, I think that conference was such a kind of amazing, amazingly intellectually rich um, feast for me, set inside a very brutalist, benign building in Copenhagen. Um, it's true. <laughs> But I think I had, yeah, I, I hadn't heard of the the World's Fair, the, the two water shows that you mentioned, mm -hmm. Billy Rose's Aquacade, which Esther Williams is in, right? Or she works with Billy Rose. Yeah, um, Eleanor Holm was the big star, mm. uh, Eleanor Holm, and she was, she was another swimming performer. She was married to Billy Rose. Um, she had been on the U.S. women's team, but was not allowed to compete in the Olympics because she drank champagne scandalously on the boat on the way to the Olympics. Oh my God. Uh, they kicked her off the team. Um, they, they argued that she was a, a raging alcoholic, and she argued <laughs> that uh, the chaperone had propositioned her and she had turned him down. So he had figured out a way to get her kicked off for drinking. Um, but yes, and um, Weissmuller, Johnny Weissmuller, who went yes. on to be Tarzan and Buster Crab, yeah. um, a lot of those early water performers were mm. involved, and yeah, Esther Williams as well. 
yeah it, yeah it was interesting and then of course because I'm from a background in contemporary art I was fascinated to hear, hear about Dali's dream of Venus as the show that bombed but that offered a kind of different view to the to Billy Rose's Acclicade which really took off and is what is kind of similar to what we see in Wikiwatchi. In my show here in New Zealand, I've been lucky to get Andrew Brusso's permission to show one of his videos of, of a very nostalgic, beautiful Wikiwatchi performance. Oh, excellent. So it's that, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so that shows in the background and we have a glass case with Annette Kellerman's um, a, a vintage tail that she would have worn on land, you know, at soirees, I guess, um, in, in the foreground. You, I, I think one of the big things that struck me was your taxonomy of water when I saw your keynote and thinking about, oh yeah, why a woman so associated with water and water has got a lot more to it than meets the eye when we're just absorbing these performances like, you know, water itself is being staged. And I Absolutely. suppose it just brought that to my consciousness in a way that I, I hadn't had that awareness before. And I started thinking about, well, yeah, like, is the moon, are, are we the womb of the world or what? Like, why are women and water so linked? Mm. Yeah. So I, um, I, I looked at water in um, the performances that I look at take place in outdoor water spaces. There were other things at that conference. Um, Tracy Davis, another theater historian, referred to water as a technology because she was coming at it as a much more theatrical staged perspective. And I was coming more from a performance studies perspective. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that there is sort of what might be called natural water, although nothing on earth at this point is untouched by humans, but it's geographically occurring water that we have sort of more or less left alone and perhaps um, lakes rivers, these kinds of things. Um, the ocean, uh, to some extent, right, is a thing that that is there uh, mm -hmm. that we did not put there. Uh, and then there's what I would call domesticated water, which is those same geographical things that we have somehow intervened to put a stage into. Um, so Wikiwachi has an underwater theater that they built down into so you could see under the spring. Mm -hmm. um, Ocarina Springs had a submarine theater that was the same sort of thing, only, you know, novelty. Mm. And they lowered you down below the surface of the spring so that you could see. Uh, and that's all in opposition mm. to fully domesticated water, which is water that comes into artificial tanks through pipes. Um, that water is not completely without its own will and mind. So SeaWorld was using domesticated water, but the red tide, so they were pumping the water in and the red tides made it so that their tanks were completely opaque when they first opened without the filtration systems. Um, so all of these all of these natural things, no matter how domesticated or tamed they are, will push back. Um, and sort of at the end of the day, you know, natural forces are larger than human control, even if we don't think so. Um, and they will make that presence known. So I, I sort of was very interested in what kinds of water performances were in what kinds of spaces and how much control the humans who created those performances thought that gave them. So for example, SeaWorld's in the most controlled kind of water, and then all of a sudden we're introducing danger by putting apex predators in that space, which those folks seem to think they had full control over. But like I said, they didn't, neither the water nor the non-human animals in it. Um, and so certain kinds of water spaces are very intentionally chosen for certain ideological purposes. 
Have you seen Million Dollar Mermaid? And what do you think of some of those? I have not in a very long time. Um, mm. Not enough to speak on it intelligently. I'm more familiar with uh, Mr. Peabody's Mermaid and some other mm. um, films that are from relatively the same era. But that's all a little bit before, a little bit before and a little bit outside Um I draw a boundary around film often just because I'm like, I'm talking about so much theater and performance that I'm going to leave yeah. film for the movie, the movie experts. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I am curious though about the relationship to nostalgia that you identify with um, presentations of water performances. And so in Million Dollar Mermaid, it's very much um, creating a big Busby Berkeley choreographed spectacle of um, aqua shows, which uh, don't really exist in the same ways anymore or seem to have morphed into synchronized swimming. You know, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift just stole from that for her most recent video. Oh, God. And Glee. Glee also did a big water spectacle in one of their... So it, there's still the she uh, Taylor Swift used Busby Berkeley in her her most recent video, um, which actually was also pulling from a lot of um, showgirl chorus girl kind of things with uh, references to gemstones, um, just like the the Ziegfeld Follies girls yeah. were characterized. Um, so they're still around. I noted that, um, but I think and I but I think she's drawing on nostalgia too, right? Mm, yeah. um, and. The water space is, like I said, usually a space of fairy tales. It's supposed to be a space that's exotic and apart from industrialized society. So there's a ton of nostalgia that goes into that. Uh, and along with that seems to be this spectacle of very idealized feminine beauty um, that you can look at but not touch, that's family friendly, um, but still kind of sexy. And there's a lot of notion, there's a lot of appeal in these often leisure vacation spaces being different from our day-to-day -day lives. And that difference seems to be that nostalgia um, element of it. And the Busby Berkeley stuff was also being heavily influenced by military and the impact of the wars on culture and the idea of large scale, unified sets of movement and dance that aren't dance like ballet or modern. They're, you know, choreographed mm. sort of mechanized kinds of movements. Um, which was a which was a major influence in the spectacles at that time. Um, and you can still see in sort of Olympic opening ceremonies as well. The Chinese one had that same large scale mechanized yeah. kind of choreography. Yeah, that is very much a feature. Oh, it's interesting. When I went and, and did some of my physical journeys to meet mermaids, I went to Fort Lauderdale and I went to the wreck bar. I wanted to go to the wreck because Medu Serena set the show up herself. I was interested in women who were self-starters. I mean, I know Wiki Watchy is far more famous, but it's also far more documented. And it's yes. someone else's vision that, of course, women populate with their own skills. Um, but one day I wandered, I wandered the local area and wound up in the swimming um, hall of fame, the museum there oh, along the beach in yeah. Fort Lauderdale. And there's this dusty older part of it with the history of swimming presented. And I think until I walked in there, I'd never really thought about swimming as having a history. I'd never thought about how pools became popularized or even how swimming had become popularized. And I was very interested in, or there's a, 
a stuffed kind of statue of Johnny, Johnny, how do you say his surname? Oh, Weissmuller? Yeah, he's in a corner there with a bobcat and a stuffed turtle and a wax of course, you know, yes. thing of him um, as Tarzan. But then I became really aware, ah, oh, these these features with mermaids in them were very linked to people to early film and to people mm -hmm. figuring out how to make films that had water elements. Um, yes, and and you know I think Newt Perry, who set up Wiki Watchy himself was scouting for locations and helping film locations. So um, it's just all tied up with quite a fictitious presentation of what it means to be underwater. Well, and the earliest, these earliest attractions were before um, sort of Jacques Cousteau's work to make underwater world accessible to audiences through film. So they are using the same spectacle as film. You sit on one side and there's a glass that separates you from what's happening. So you, and they, the, the performers underwater obviously cannot hear the audience in the way that you can in other kinds of theatrical presentations. So it's very filmic the way that these mm. early theaters are set up. And then, um, as technology developed within film, that became a much more accessible, much more popular way, um, which sort of rendered under the water a little bit less exciting and a little bit less mysterious to folks than it was when these early attractions were happening. Oh, yeah, that's a very good point in itself. What, several years on from Swim Pretty, what stays with you about having written that book and the kind of... Uh, conversations that might have provoked for you? Yes. Um, one thing that really uh, I was excited about is that one thing I talk a lot about in Swim Pretty is the overwhelming whiteness of mermaids mm. um, and of these attractions. And so I was very excited when they announced, I'm not super excited in general about the live action Disney films, but I was really excited when they announced that they were going to do a live action Little Mermaid with a black actress. Mm. Um, and I, I was very happy to be a little bit out of date um, the discourse around that has been uh, disappointing, although not surprising. There's a lot of pushback against that actress, mm. um, Halle Bailey. Um, there's a lot of pushback against defiling what a mermaid is supposed to be. Like, like there are politicians mm. who argue that mermaids are white, um, as if mermaids are real <laughs> and, yeah. and historical, and that that makes any sense. Um, there's pushback against the way that she sort of interpreted the music, which is almost identical to the original, but with a little bit of an R&B flair. Um, so I, I'm I'm not surprised, but disappointed about how little progress has sort of been made in the media about diversifying mermaid depictions. Um, on the other hand, there's a lot. Uh, there's the Society of Fat Mermaids, who mm -hmm. I follow on Instagram, and there's a lot um, of more body positive, LGBTQ positive mermaids. Um, Post my book, the sort of association of mermaid with the trans community became more of a thing. Um, and so all of those, I think, are uh, things that I, I note and um, things that I am sort of excited about as they kind of disrupt the arguments that I was making in really positive ways, I think. Um, and then uh, it's one of those things where people like... <laughs> You know, mermaids sort of had their big moment, as I, I think you know, and maybe they moved on a little bit. But I'll, I'll still hear from folks about the mermaids and things. And then I moved. I now live about 45 minutes from Wikiwachi. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's very interesting how all of this and now my life is sort of back 
mm. at the Wikiwachi parks and back by the ocean. Um, and so I, I did grow up having to be uh, on the swim team and knowing exactly how hard swimming is and exactly sort of some of the training and history that went into it. And I was not, a I was a, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm a good swimmer. I was never a fast swimmer. I was never Nanette Kellerman. I wasn't even a pretty swimmer. Mm. Um, so I did not swim pretty. Uh, so I think a lot of what I've been interested in is knowing very visceral, vis viscerally the um, athletic demands of swimming and then yeah. the sort of cultural narratives around it that still exist um, and how those things don't don't really coincide in a realistic fashion. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, for me, it's been a strange thing for me to end up preoccupied by, given that I can't swim. Uh, well, you know. didn't you go do mermaid training? I thought you did go do the mermaid training. Oh, look, I did when I was in Fort Lauderdale because, you know, the classes are much more um, widespread across um, yeah. the US. I did go and do a class one on one with, um, you know, a mermaid class, just me and the trainer. And yeah, I mean, Jenny, for me, it was a totally abject experience. Like I'm underwater being told to blow bubble kisses. Yes. And it was just so bizarre for me. Like I got up at a festival and I've been asked to write and speak something about shame and I got up and and spoke about that experience and I remember a critique later online saying oh it was nothing really that you'd you'd hesitate to mention at a you know at a party with friends but for me it was deeply shameful like there was something about the way I've been raised and brought up and what I value about myself that being underwater blowing some bloody bubble kisses and roiling about like a huge you know haggis made me feel totally yes. bizarre um, but I, I really appreciate the skill set in others, and I, I, I think I'm interested in the conundrum of mermaiding because, you know, I, I can see the limitations, but I still want to see a really pretty mermaid sipping grapeette underwater by a ridiculous seahorse if I can. I still want to see it and consume it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yes, I completely understand, like having grown up wishing that I could be one of the really good swimmers and then, you know, being taken to Wikiwachi where it was so effortless for them. Yeah, that it, would, it looked like no labor at all to the point where I didn't even understand the mechanics of how the show worked and how they did what they did. And the mechanics are actually quite terrifying if you watch the behind the scenes videos. Um, well, they go down that enormous tunnel too. Yeah, to the really scary tunnel. Um, yeah, it is frightening. Yes. So I, I think... Um, they're so culturally endemic and so bound up in notions of femininity and um, culture and, you know, natural, like being natural in the world uh, that even if you're like, wait a second, um, at the same time, you're still like, okay, but also wouldn't it be great to be like, they look so relaxed and they, they make it all look so easy, both like swimming and life. So there is an appeal to that. Yeah, there is. And I think I've spoken to a lot of people who either perform, you know, who perform professionally the, the role of the mermaid or recreationally. And it brings up all sorts of different things, like mindfulness is quite a big part of it. And um, a lot of women and people have, uh, the water is their happy place. That's what yes. I learned linked them and somewhere where they feel deep comfort. And for me, it isn't. And I don't think you can easily turn that around. <laughs> Certainly you can't turn it around in an hour. 
Um, right. No, no, no. But, <laughs> Not with a tail on or what have you. <laughs> like, but it is highly athletic, especially, you know, there are yeah. all sorts of different performers like Hannah Mermaid, who's in my show, who can perform, you know, at depth in the ocean. Then there's yeah. others like Medu Serena who can do, you know, atmospheric shows and swimming pools. But they have a really big vocabulary for how they do, how they learn to stay down and look yes. comfortable when they're not comfortable well you know, yes I think um probably one last thing to point out is uh, perhaps how tied up mermaids are with tourism oh yes so a lot of tourism in western nations was developed around um, visiting exotic others and that's frequently depicted as Eastern cultures um, or Polynesian or South Seas cultures. Uh, but the other, you know, the ultimate other space for the longest time was under the ocean, right? And I, I guess we kind of see there, we're seeing the flip side of that with all of these billionaires sending themselves into space, <laughs> yeah, uh, a sort of other kind of tourism that we can't, we most of us cannot access. They're just mm. very inhospitable places under the ocean and up in space. Uh, so. For sure, mermaids sort of stood in um, for everything that we could not have in our day-to-day -day lives. They were free of chores. They were free of industrialized labor. They were free of, uh, it's never fully explained who they eat or how they eat them because some of their fish friends have got to be food. Uh, although I have seen it argued that they're all depicted as so thin because they live on seaweed. Um, <laughs> It's a fairly common argument, um, but they're sort of our ambassadors to this other world that is, um, and it actually, I mean, it actually is, right? Having grown up swimming, um, I would spend a lot of time sort of off by myself swimming from one side of the pool to the other underwater. Um, and it's just, it is very quiet and the light looks mm. very different and you aren't subject to the sort of social dynamics in a neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky, that I didn't really belong in, mm. um, it was a, a it was an escape. It was a vacation to mm. sort of put myself there and to not be able to hear or see that other world space. And so the mermaid is sort of the stand-in for you know for folks like you who don't swim, mm. um, but who can have that ambassador to that other space. Um, mm. And I, in a swimming pool, I can ignore. There's no flora or fauna, right? Like there's mm. nothing to actually make my life dangerous. And, no. and for the most part, when we see mermaids um, in film or television or theater, they they similarly are divorced from, you know, the wiki-watchy mermaids were kept separate from mm. alligators, for example. Uh, so so I think, yeah, they, they are to transport us to a touristic location where we can escape our sort of tedious um, kind of miserable lives for a little bit. <laughs> That's definitely part of what they've been for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. But I think um, <clears throat> I, 
I just wonder too about, it's interesting to think that they've always been linked to aquariums, the performance yes, of, always. of mermaids. And to think about, oh, well, gosh, when did aquariums arrive? How did they arrive? And then realizing how colonial this history is. Of yeah, I actually did a little, I've been doing research post that book into the earlier aquariums, um, particularly uh, the first ones in the United States, which all were clustered in New England. Mm. Um, one of the earliest aquariums in the United States was set up by P.T. Barnum. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. right? Who yeah. Uh, had whales in tanks in his uh, museum. Uh, the whales died tragically and horribly when the museum burned down and they broke the tanks so that they could have the water to try to put the fire out and the whales sort of suffocated and burned to death. But even in those most, the, in the most early aquariums in the United States, um, they they did have a mermaid kind of figure. Um, there's a drawing from the 19th century of a girl who went to the aquarium. I forget if it was in, I think it was in Massachusetts. And she saw a woman being pulled around by um, probably beluga whales. So they set up a little chariot and they plunked this woman on it. And she was being pulled around. And she does a really great illustration of that and what she saw at the, the earliest possible aquarium in the United States. So um, it has always been a really weird feature that uh, fish, whales, sharks, not exciting on their own. So it would be, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason, everyone's impulse is to stick a woman in there. Yeah. Yeah, it is fascinating. And to hear earlier in our conversation that perhaps activism has always been linked with mermaiding, yeah. which is very much a strong kind of identity or consciousness uh, uh, amongst people who are mermaid now. Um, yeah, because even in the sort of sexual exploitation of things like Aquacade or the, the early films, mm. um, those women, I think, by virtue of needing to be effortless athletic performers had a really strong sense of who they were and what they were capable of mm. um, and what they wanted to accomplish within the systems that they had. Um, and so I think, you know, it's a it's a dual identity where I, I can't look at those women and say like, oh, that is an empowered action to be in a bikini being sort of objectified for how you look. But at the same time, um, Annette Kellerman, um, Eleanor Holm, these were women who knew what they were capable of physically. And so, you know, that that sort of propelled a voice where they argued for change and they argued for social intervention and they argued for more autonomy. Um, and I think that comes out of being able to excel and, you know, live in a space in the water where most everyone else couldn't. Mm. Yeah, I think Annette Kellerman seems like she rejected the title of feminist in her own lifetime, born as she was in, you know, 1886. Yes, yes. she was very much an entrepreneur, you know. She yes. went through several careers, transitioning from vaudeville into silent screen, running yep. health businesses, health food shops, another big link with current mermaids, and just how her athleticism and her refusal to be bogged down in unnecessary clothing in the water did end yep. up paving a way for, for women to take up swimming in a more realistic manner. A hundred percent and allowed them to take up swimming in a competitive manner because yeah. before that intervention into the bathing suits themselves, there was no competitive women swimming. It wasn't possible or feasible. So that was a, it was a huge change in terms of uh, the whole trajectory of swimming history, honestly. 
one of the things that stunned me and stayed with me at, from the um, Florida Swimming Hall of Fame was not the display for Billy, uh, Billy Rose's Aquacade. It was this um, set of, you know, plaques about the Great Slocum disaster, or it was about some kind of fire that was on a cruise, a pleasure cruise ship that was just off the coast of somewhere like New York. And it was only a few yards of swimming, yet tragically, mainly women and girls and others died because they yes. couldn't swim. People couldn't swim. And it, right. said, it said on the plaque that, um, that that accident was the biggest loss of life before 9-11 in and around wow. New York. Um, I, I haven't peer reviewed that, Jenny, but um, that really <laughs> that really stayed with me. Um, yes. That yeah, swimming I, was not available to many. No. Like yeah. I said, the earliest swimming for the, like, obviously it's geographically dependent, right? People who yeah. lived in the South or who had yeah. uh, access to water would have a different relationship. But up in New England, um, the only place that people could swim was sort of, you know, in the bay or in the rivers. And those were often filthy and disgusting and not places that you wanted to go into. And there's stories about like going down to the pools that are built in uh, in New York to the sort of the river and, you know, carcasses float by because they just threw everything mm. into the water. Um, and so there was no desire or uh, impetus to learn to swim. And, and so in a tragedy like that, absolutely between lack of knowledge and the sort of weight of clothing, mm. uh, a few yards would be insurmountable. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it, it's funny how, you know, one of the things we joked about at the conference was what, when you're looking into mermaids, of course, you get sent mermaid knickknacks and all of these yes. mermaidy things. Yes. And, I get that too, and I'm okay with that because I like that I've got something relatable in my very strange life. But um, it takes you into all of these places that you just yeah. wouldn't think about, like mermaiding is very much uh, a social history. Um, Absolutely. Well, and so it dates back to, um, you know, I mean, it goes back and there's different in lots of different cultures. There's lots of different kinds of mermaids. And my expertise is really on the, the sort of Western Christian idea of mermaids. But, mm. you know, there's long histories of mermaids and femininity and danger um, that are sort of all tied up in cultural ideas of water and what it is. And it, it is a huge, I mean, it is a lens through which you can kind of see um, different cultures and their perceptions on their relationships with the natural world. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I remember that conference uh, fondly. Absolutely. Yes, it was. It was lovely. And it was lovely to meet lots of people and to hear lots of different perspectives and to continue. I continue to get to, you know, follow things that people are are putting out. And even though I'm not really um, doing things strictly on mermaids anymore, uh, obviously, mm. I am keenly still keenly interested and uh, excited to see sort of, I, you know, I hope the diversification of mermaid representation continues uh, and that everyone bad swimmer or not, mm. um, standard feminine beauty or not, uh, mm. can find a, a way into that. Because I, I do think there is um, there is truth that we need uh, ambassadors to other cognition, other realities in the world, um, and other perspectives than our own. It's definitely been my experience that whilst I had to eventually admit within myself that I wanted to see the beautiful mermaids, that many, many people relate to this um, myth. And, and the biggest draw for people is either wanting to see one or wanting to be one 
or both mm-hmm. and that I feel I think and feel that that actually transcends the boundaries of all the original films and storylines it's that wish fulfillment that is the deepest part of it yeah perhaps I think we all want the ability to transform and mm. I think we all want magic in the world somehow yeah on that I will end the zoom the magic all of right. our era <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. Take care. Bye. Bye. Just how much I love I've heard the mermaid singing and how... I re-watched it again. I'd always remembered it, always remembered this poster too. I love the poster and I love that you made the poster. Um, But I was Skyping people who perform as mermaids and then when I finally got around to watching the film, which was in my head somehow, I was surprised to find there were no mermaids in it. And yet it's the work that perhaps resonated most deeply with me and, and touched my own story. And that gets back to this original conversation we had where you said the idea of someone possessed with the song of mermaids in her heart was moving to me. I didn't make any connections to siren calls. I just thought of it as something unbearably beautiful. You can hear it, but you can't reflect it back. Um, And Polly's the hero. Do you... Do you love the creator in the film? Like Polly's kind of the heroine of the film, isn't she? You know. Uh What can I ask you? What? Why you think it it touched you so? I yeah okay. I I always have a big association to a redhead, so I. I think the fact that her hair is red is significant. I know that sounds really stupid because she brings so much to that performance. And I've I've watched a documentary about the film earlier um, today. And she's saying every line she's saying is a line you wrote, yet she really inhabits inhabits the role. And I think it's because she's in the art world. And when I watched it, I you know, I went to art school many years ago, Patricia. I've ended up a writer and and an art writer. So somehow watching all the characters play out these roles in and around the art world, um, is very interesting to me but also very dear to me because whatever propels us into that world which is often depicted on film as being quite sophisticated and it it is in the you know in the world of the curator and her character um is propelled by this fundamental innocence to um hear the mermaids calling yeah i definitely um feel like what initially lures people into the act of creation um, is, is, is very pure and very beautiful. I find that sometimes that purity um, is, it, it, is, it is met by a kind of a hardness when, when it gets into the business of art. Also, the, 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 you know, the, the, the fundamental question of uh, is it enough to just want to do it, to love to do it, to do it with an open heart? Um, and can people judge that? Can people judge hearts? Can people judge honest expressions? Um, you know, I, I do believe that 
some work is good and some work isn't. The, 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 the film itself comes from a, a much more uh, subjective um, uh, approach to art. You know, it comes from a place that says, doesn't matter. doesn't matter where you think it's good or not good. It's just, it, it just is. And the, the, the wish to make it is enough. But, but then on a very personal level, I just had each of the characters represent sides of myself and then put, and that, that were at odds with each other, you know, um, the, uh, you know, the art, the kind of uncomplicated artist who just wants to play in the sandbox, just love to make something and see something that pleases them, doesn't need to analyze it. The other one that is, you know, the, the curator who, who mm. is just judging it always and knows that they'll never make, that I'll never make reach my own standards and then uh the the mary joseph part mm. who is like kind of a little bit sickened by the act of self-promotion and repeating yourself in interviews and going around trotting about how special you are um like that that um that the, the, those three personas that inhabit me anyway and probably a lot of filmmakers and artists of different kinds um I, I just thought that that was rich material like rich and complicated and messy and fun <laughs> there's that very funny shrewd scene with the male art critic um and you know I understood you got given a bit of well you know just there were questions around whether that scripting was realistic, you know, the international art language that they were speaking. And um, I, I guess I had it a was. Yeah, I know it is because I'm, I <laughs> am in and around that world. So I fully understand that. <laughs> that it I is pushed true. it over the edge. I pushed it over the edge here and there, like to, 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 to make it, you know, fully, um, you know, to, to, to tip my hand that it was satirical. It was making fun, but I just, I really didn't want to, it's a hard thing. I didn't, I didn't want to make fun of uh, the, you know, application of the analytical side of ourselves to art. Cause I think that's a really important process. And I think that, um, you know, the, it, it, maybe the maker doesn't always have that language and that capacity to put it in a historical context and cultural context, but it's a really, it, it, you know, important um, part of the whole, uh, you know, uh, significance of art in our, in our lives. I, I think, um, I, so I wanted to poke fun a little bit because, because the film was from Polly's point of view. So it was a quite a naive point of view, right? So, but for instance, when Polly is conducting a symphony, she's not conducting an obscure, you know, Josquin de Preply sort of like she's mm. she's doing she's doing Beethoven's Fifth, you know, mm. something that would have touched her world. So I needed to have that language and the effect of that language um, be from her perspective and from her perspective it's gobbledygook you know <laughs> and she's trying desperately to kind of understand it because she, she wants in on this world because it's so sexy and so lovely and she knows there's something at the heart of it but she can't quite grasp it um so the yeah I was, is, I was, the, the curator is very sexy you know the curator oh. does have that smoldering you know quiet complicated sexuality you know that draws you in but you know and while we were shooting she said oh what i would give to have polly's role you know oh, she wow. knew that that's, that's where your heart would go 
she she knew that that was who who we would feel for. She knew enough to to, to know that 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 sophistication isn't what necessarily draws an audience, you know, or draws it draws sympathy and love. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. Tell me about the botched mermaid costume because I was really interested about the fact that you did try to visualize it, but you made this film on a very small budget that became a phenomenal success and had a 10-minute standing ovation at Cannes. So I just suddenly had the idea, what if you just she when she's looking out over the over the, you know, Lake Ontario, she just sees just a just you, you're not even sure you see it. I love kind of having something significant just thrown away. Um, just see a tail slipping into the mm. into the into the sea, you know. So uh, I had hired someone to do uh, special, um, you know, effects, and um, so she was going to make. She said, "I can make. I can do that." And I'll wear a, a, a costume, and it'll be a you know like a. I'll wear. I'll have a kind of a fin up to here, and then I'll go out and swim out there, and then go up. And, on the day I'm looking through the camera and I'm seeing like the, the it's bending in half, you know, like looking as plastic and sad as possible. She's flailing about, it's really cold. It's in October in Canada. It's like, she's really suffering out there. And, you know, I just, I would look through and it's like, oh, I'm embarrassed. I couldn't even call roll. Cause I just, I thought I don't even want any of this on film. It's so, so embarrassing. So we just cut it and we, we stuck with hearing the mermaids singing rather than seeing them. I love that that's the peak experience, though. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, yeah, the, no. and mermaids are associated with sound and voice historically. So I think it has all of these, um, you know, subtle, almost subliminal ways that, that the theme speaks to you. I, when we, I've got a, re, I've got a lot of really good gems from our first conversation, and one of them was that the mermaids in the title, you know, raised it to a mythic level in a subtle way. It was just, it was late in the game where I, I'd written it, and I was already well on the road to making it, and mm. it suddenly dawned on me that this is a J. Alfred Prufrock character, mm. and that, you know, that had, that was one of my favorite poems, and. It's a great poem. And in school, and I, I, I could quote it at length at the time. I'd written parts of it on bathroom walls. Like it was really, it, it mattered a lot to me. And I realize now that that was just kind of a person that kind of stood in for my um, my own you know, need for belonging and, 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 and lack of an obvious place to belong. Um, and... Uh, so I just scoured that poem for um, the, the line that would catch it, um, catch that, that sensation. And it was a real torture for me because, I, you know, after I made my first half hour film, I had a bad review for it. And I thought, oh, my God, am I strong enough to do this? Is, it, is, is just wanting to do it enough of a reason to yeah. do it? Like, what if you know that you're not, you're just never going to reflect back those those feelings you have and that's that that in that like that glorious sensation of what you want to make and um and it can, do you just do it anyway and this was my yeah just do it anyway evaluations we have for art are so uh time-based and so um 
fashion-based and, 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 and temporary and really reflect um, the kind of collective emotions of the time. You could be before, you could be after, or you could be of the moment. And it's very rare that you're of the moment. But if you are of the moment, you'll be rewarded. If you're just a few seconds before or a few seconds later, then you, no one's going to give a shit. You're going to be you know, considered a failure. <laughs> so interesting. One of the things that we ended our conversation with last time, which, um, you know, you were telling me you'd been walking along a beach somewhere with an actress, and she said afterwards, oh, that was a professional mermaid who we were talking to. And you were like, well, what was that? And then we got on to, you know, the popularity of mermaids in popular culture and a similar conversation where you said, I often think things become popular because the collective consciousness is ruminating on something. And I thought, she's got it, like, that's it. That's somehow, that's one of the answers I've been searching for. I agree that that somehow the, the collective overmind, as you said, wants to hear certain stories and is ready for them and others fail to find their moment. And I think, like, you know, at the moment that I made, I've heard the mermaid singing, the people were ready to hear uh something from a woman mm. you know i think that that was they didn't know they were looking for that but then mm. when they saw oh uh look at that a female filmmaker because that was a very rare event in those days mm. um and also something with you know, like i had a guy come up to me and can say three female characters and there's no guys to speak of and it works like <laughs> shocked shocked beyond shock that you could make a movie that didn't have guys in the center of it <laughs> also to come from a kind of non-sexy place like toronto canada at the time and i think we've had you know a few more films coming from there but to have something come from there and then also to have like you know a kind of a, a, a you know a lesbian angle mm. that um that that wasn't a tragedy and that didn't end in, mm. you know, someone's suicide or, or, or a cautionary tale um, with society destroying them somehow and, and ending up in the gutter somewhere like it, like that. I think there was a, there was a wish to hear that. Um, just like, and right now I feel like, you know, there's many other things that people want to hear, but I think that our group mind is, mm. Figuring out gender, mm, you know, the, the trans experience and like, what is, what is the, the binary? Isn't, isn't that basic to humanity or is that something that can change mm. and meld? And, and is there a continuum? I think that those questions are gigantic in the, mm. um, and also what is neurotypical and, you know, and neurodiverse sort of how, um, how, how do we, um, incorporate, you know, profoundly different ways of thinking, you know, all of those people throughout society that are, we're just called through, throughout history that were just called, uh, weird <laughs> or mm. odd or, you know, kind of really smart, but strange. Um, like who, who are they and how can we, um, create a respectful space for, for them now? Um, that's, I think, a, a part of our, our problem. <laughs> mm. You know, like, I don't even mean problem, but I mean that the current artistic challenge is, is that. I didn't realize I was doing anything um, kind of 
contemporary at the time. And I wasn't. I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, this is a very tiny film that had a, you know, a small, small um, audience compared to, you know, the big box office pieces that reaffirm the status quo. The big ones are basically reaffirming the status quo. They're reaffirming it so completely that you don't even see that there's a message. And that's when you're going to have a giant hit, when it doesn't feel like there's any message at all because it's actually wearing the same colors as the wallpaper. When it feels messagey, that probably means that it's either a little bit before or behind the, the status quo. They're very interesting points to reflect on. Well, I am <laughs> grateful for your film and I am so amazed and grateful to speak to you um, it will be a treat for the audience to see the film, but also to have some observations from from you yourself before it. And um, thank you for thank you for still you know making time to engage with someone who's essentially like Polly, but not quite as cute. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, it's really it's it's moving to me that you want to hear from me after all these years. I mean, isn't life the strangest thing you've ever seen?